As they're headed out, if you would, take your Bibles this morning. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews. And ladies and gentlemen, we have made it to the last chapter. Yeah. <laughs> now listen to y'all. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're going to start back in another one. All right, all right, all right, we're, we're moving on. Uh, for those of you visiting with us today, and th- those of you maybe not yet familiar with uh, our approach to the pulpit ministry, uh, I teach through a book of the Bible at a time. And so we have been in the book of Hebrews for quite some time, a couple of years, I'm guessing. And um, <laughs> what? Uh, and uh, I also like to kind of go back and forth between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so, Lord willing, we'll probably do a few uh, topical studies in between um, in transition. But we will find ourselves, Lord willing, in an Old Testament book uh, during our next series. So be praying for me in that as I uh, seek to discern the Lord's leading in uh, which book we'll move into. But Hebrews has been incredible. Uh, for me personally, in my own study time, Uh, And again, I'm just being transparent with you. I stayed away from Hebrews for a long time. Those of you who know my story, I was saved at 25. uh, Quite the uh, prodigal son, if you will, and then some. And uh, when I was uh, saved at 25, I went into Bible college, knew nothing about this book, other than I used to dust it off every now and then in the drawer and put it back in there. Um, And that was it. And uh, Hebrews just intimidated me. Uh, I felt like I needed a, a, a degree in, in Hebrew or something just to kind of understand the Old Testament uh, correlation to, to it. But uh, as I've dove into it, it's been phenomenal. And I hope you've been rewarded richly as well in our time in this book. And so I'm a little sad we're kind of coming to a close. But we're not there yet, so hang tight. We'll see how far we get today. We are in Hebrews 13. And um, uh, let's take a look. We'll begin our reading here in verse 1 and following. Hebrews 13, 1. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Father, I pray asking you this morning that I will simply be a vessel for your honor. Lord, use me today to proclaim your truth with boldness, not fearing man, but fearing you, Lord, that I will deliver this message in your power with your truth, and Lord, that the receiver, the listener, that we will have ears to hear. Lord, I pray our hearts not be hardened, that if somehow we feel as if our toes are stepped on, that we'll recognize it's the gentle, corrective hand of God. 
Lord, help us to be sensitive to hear. Help us to be challenged in the areas where we need to change. Lord, let us simply be soft clay in your hands. Mold us into the image you would have us be. And we ask it in the precious name that is above every name. In the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's message is let brotherly love continue. We've been studying through Hebrews and quite frankly most of everything up to this point has been heavy doctrine. We've been looking at how Christ is greater than and you know the context of this book. There are those Jewish uh, believers that are gathered together. There are many that are with them that are not yet believers and many who are struggling with whether or not they should go back into Judaism. And so the writer writes, pleading not to stay on the fence, but to make a surrendered commitment to follow after Jesus Christ. Because He's a fulfillment of everything that they were taught in Judaism. He is a fulfillment of everything that was proclaimed in the Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the new covenant. He has offered that new covenant in His blood shed upon Calvary. His death, burial, and resurrection has blazed away so that the veil is now torn. We now have access through Him to the Father. He is our high priest. And so the writer has been reasoning in their language. He's been speaking their tongue, if you will. And yet he's been showing over and over again how Christ is greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood. He is greater than these things. Jesus is enough. And so for 12 chapters, there's been a lot of doctrine. And now we come to 13, and he lays out some practical. Now, let me just say this. I, I came out of a Bible-believing church, and, and, and once in a while, you know, you, you hear a little bit of the, when you're not the pastor. Because <laughs> when you're the pastor, you're the last one to hear anything. But when I wasn't a pastor, uh, uh, as far as the lead pastor, I was the associate pastor, youth pastor. I, every now and then, I catch a little wind of what people were saying. And I remember this one guy used to say all the time, man, I wish Pastor Bob would, would he, he's great at teaching doctrine. He teaches doctrine great, but I wish he'd teach more application." And my response to him was, Brother, you don't get any greater application than doctrine. Doctrine is what springs forth into application. Without doctrine, we've got no foundation. Doctrine is our application. But I understood what he was meaning. I didn't beat him up too bad with a wet noodle. He was a friend, and he was my brother, and so brotherly love continues. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we would have these conversations, and... Uh, but I, but I just uh, I was reminded as I come to this and I see this chapter and I see that you know here it, it, it could be misconstrued that it's just simply now some random practical things because when you read through this it almost seems a little like he's jumping all over the place. This is another reason why I think it's Paul. Okay, we don't know who the author who who actually held the pen. I believe it's Paul, and I think this is another one of those cases where you see that. But with that said, that's the Bible nerd in me coming out. Forget I said that. Let's take a look again in the text. And I want us to focus on some of these uh, points of application, if you will, today. So, if I can get my PowerPoint to PowerPoint. 
I may need to just blind you with this, brother, and let you click it for me. There we go. Ho, oh, check it out. Love your brother and sisters in Christ. Notice verse 1 if you would. Let brotherly love continue. Now he's in saying this as if he, he's assumed that it's happening. This group of people he's writing to, it's an assumption that, hey, they've been loving one another as they should, and he's encouraging them to continue on in that. And so we see here, let brotherly love continue. And, and let me just stop because I want to explain, and I think it needs to be explained, especially in our day. I'm going to pass this on to you because I'll be on to that point for a little while. There's basically four Greek words that when we come to the New Testament that are used in description of love. And so I think it's important that we have a proper understanding of definition of what these words are. Now most of us, and especially in good old America, are familiar with that word that was up there, eros. Eros is the word where we get erotica from. It's ecstasy. It's sensual love. All you got to do is flip on your television anytime, day or night, and that's probably what you're seeing. It's sensual love. In fact, I would go so far as to say that it's made its way into the church and even a lot of Christians do not understand that they think they're in love when in actuality what they have is a sensual, a feeling, and it's these butterflies that if it's not true love, it's going to go away. Eros, love, is a very dangerous type of love. Our society is saturated with it. The second word that we see is storge. It's a word used for love. It's, very, uh, it's, it's similar to that of philea, it's, which we'll get to in just a moment. But it's this idea of, of family love, the kind of love between a parent and a child, or between the family members. And so a lot of times this word is used to describe the family love. But agape, agape is the biblical love, and this is the word for love that, that we as believers need to understand most importantly. It's the most powerful word for love in the New Testament. It's often used to describe God's love toward us. It is a love that loves without changing. It is a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It is love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. Agape love isn't about feelings. Let me say that again. Agape love isn't about feelings. It is about decision. David Guzik said that. But the word for love used here in Hebrews 13.1 is Philadelphia. It's coming from the root philea. It's the ancient Greek word spoken of brotherly friendship and affection. It's the love of deep friendship and partnership. There should always be plenty of this kind of love among Christians. And it should continue. That's the type of love described here when the writer 
comes off of all that he's been saying for these past 12 chapters. And then he says, look, this type of partnership, this type of love, believer, for one another, it should continue. And so what does this look like? What, what practically does this look like then? All this he's been teaching and all this he's been pointing to when we are found in Christ. And again, think about the real struggle that was facing those people there. Many of them seeing the persecution. And it was on the increase. And they weren't sure if they wanted to go that route. You know, being just a good, faithful Jew was a lot safer than going down this road of Christianity. And so the writer, at this point, I believe, though he's been dealing mainly with those on the fence off and on, he's now turned his attention full on to those Christians. And he will give one last plea to those fence riders. But here he starts and he goes in and he says, first off, you need to entertain strangers. This is what love looks like. This is what brotherly love continued. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. You may recognize the picture up here. And this is Abraham. Picture, he actually took a selfie. Now, uh, this is a painting. And you recall the account, Genesis 18, 19. If you want to go back and check that out sometime this week and read through that. But you'll recall, the strangers came to him. And of the three, two were angels, and one, we believe, is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And he brought them into his house, and he entertained them, entertaining angels unaware. We see throughout the Old Testament other examples. You think of even Abraham's uh, cousin, uh, our nephew, you, you think of uh, Lot, and, uh, and the angels that came into town as they left from here, and they made their way through. We also find other examples of where the believer opened their home to strangers. Now, let's put things in context. At the time in which this letter goes out, the writer of Hebrews knows that Christianity is spreading. And many of the apostles, many of the teachers were going from town to town and so as they would come through town, they would not want to go to the local inn. Yes, they had motels back in those days. You know the difference between a hotel and a motel, right? The number of insects. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, just made that one up. Anyway. Um, the, there were motels in those days, in this sense. They were places of ill repute you would not want to stay at the motel, if you will. The inn. Well, let me give you a picture. Think of uh, Les Mis. Anybody familiar with Les Mis? The innkeepers? Yeah, master of the house kind of stuff? Yeah, nasty. Yeah, you, don't want, you didn't want to go there. All right? Not only is not the kind of place that you would want to go and stay, as born-again believers set apart unto the gospel, as we see here in this chapter... Moral integrity and character was something that was of great importance. And so it was vital that the believers were the ones who opened their homes. 
so that these travelers who were coming through would have a place to stay. In fact, read 3 John. 3 John's all about they're praising Gaius and giving that, man, your reputation precedes you, man. Well, the, the brothers have come to us and told us that there's great reputation with you. You receive the brethren who come in, those missionaries traveling through the town, and you take them in. Not only do you take them in, you provide things for them on their journey. Now, we know about Diotrephes. He wants to have the preeminence. Diotrephes was this self-appointed leader in that gathering of believers, and he was denying them. And so, the writer is telling the believers here, don't, don't forget your responsibility, Christian. Those missionaries that journey through, you have a responsibility to provide for them, to house them, to feed them, to send them on their way. Now, things have changed, and oftentimes today, obviously, you know, we've got a little nicer hotel, and sometimes our missionaries will stay there, but many times missionaries have stayed in my house, they've stayed in your house. I always like to, in the day in which we live, give them the option, because everybody's different. Did you know people do things different than the way you do it? I know that comes as a shock for many of you, but some people actually do things different than the way you do it. Guess what? You do things different than I do. I still love you. But there's different ways in which we try to minister to those travelers of today. But this in the context is specifically what he's saying. He's saying, look, let love, brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain those folks who come through. Who knows? Maybe unaware you're entertaining angels. In the ancient world, those motels did not exist. Listen to this. This is some, some history for you in regards to the importance of hospitality. And it's also a good, war a good instruction for us today in using discernment. Because when, I, when we see this, and immediately if we're not careful, we can, we can automatically go, well, see, we're supposed to help the strangers, the strangers on the street. And especially if, they're, if they profess Jesus, we must help them all. Not necessarily. We need, to, we need to exercise discernment. What do I mean by that? Listen to this. Because of the free offer of hospitality, Christians had to watch out for people just masquerading as Christians so they could leech off the generosity of God's people. Can I just take a pause here today? As a pastor, you've heard me say this before. I get a lot of knocks at my door. Not so much now that I move over here, now they knock on Nate's door. But anyway. <laughs> but a lot of times, and you've heard me say it, nine out of ten times, they're praying on the church. Not praying... They're praying on the church. Now, we never want to miss the one. God help us to be discerning, to not miss the one. But we must be discerning. We must be discerning in the day in which we live. But many people in this time, it began to increase because word got out. And so, all of a sudden, people were masquerading. They were manipulating. They were praying on the goodwill and the good intention of people. And they will do that, Christian. As time went on, Christian leaders taught their people, you hear that? Christian leaders taught their people how to recognize these deceivers. The diadach was an early church ministry manual. Okay, The diadach was like the preacher's guide, how to. Preaching for dummies, that's the one I needed. But anyway, the diadach was an early church ministry manual written perhaps somewhere between 90 and 110 A.D. It had this to say about how to tell if a false prophet abused the hospitality of those in the church. 
and I quote, Let every apostle that comes to you be received as the Lord. But he shall not remain except one day. But if there be need, also the next. But if he remains three days, he's a false prophet. <laughs> Some of you are going, oops. <laughs> and when the apostle goes away, let him take nothing but bread. But if he asks for money, he's a false prophet. And every prophet that speaks in the Spirit, you shall neither try nor judge, for every sin shall be forgiven. But this one sin shall not be forgiven. But not everyone that speaks in the Spirit is a prophet, but only if he holds the ways of the Lord. Therefore, from the ways shall the false prophet and the true prophet be known. And that's from the Anti-Nicene Fathers, volume 7, page 380. Wow! You thought your pastor was tough. <laughs> Gang, when we're hospitable to others, the Scriptures tell us we really welcome Jesus. And that's the truth. You know, in, in Matthew 25, 35, he talks about, when you've done this to the least of these, you've done this to me. So, we have a responsibility to be people who are hospitable. When's the last time you opened your home to somebody? In the faith? Now look, we got care groups coming up this summer. All right, Lord willing, I love our small groups. Many of you open your homes. We gather together. It's a great opportunity. And listen, if you're in that care group and you, you want to open your home, please volunteer that. Um, our group loves to just kind of bounce around and rotate, and if you feel led to open your home, open your home. That's wonderful. It's an opportunity, gang. You're the one that's blessed, and, and it's, it's a responsibility. It's something that we as Christians should be known by, is our hospitality. And there's many ways that we can express our hospitality. That's just one. But we find this to be the case here in Hebrews, and he's encouraging those brothers to continue such a thing. Notice verse 3. Remember the prisoners, he says. Remember those that are in prison. He says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Now that gives a deeper meaning, doesn't it? What's he saying? He's saying, empathize. Put yourself in their shoes. He just talked about this in Hebrews 10. We talked about how many members, a lot of them were kind of shrinking back. They didn't want to get into that whole persecution. But many of them were, they kind of rose to the occasion when the persecution began. And so no doubt, in the context of this letter, there are many of those believers who are currently in prison. And they knew them. And he's saying, look, put yourself in their shoes. Empathize with where they're at. Again, these are the believers, most likely He's specifically referencing those who are in prison for the sake of the gospel. And so, again, in the context, when we're entertaining strangers, those missionaries, those who are sent forth, going out, bringing the gospel to town, those who are, who are proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, we're to help show hospitality and support to them. Those who are in prison, and no doubt, there are many around the globe today who are suffering currently in prison for the sake 
of the gospel. I shared this with our new members class this morning, which by the way, if you're visiting here and you want more information about the church, join us next Sunday. We'll be over in the gym, the back of the gym, and those two doors, the very back of the gym. Uh, we've just begun a, a class, new membership class. It's informative. It'll let you know about Community Baptist Church, what we believe, and uh, it's a great class. I hope you can come be a part of it. But I was talking to them this morning, and we were discussing this. Guys, we're there. In, in our society, we're seeing people persecuted for the gospel. Now, not like we're seeing in some countries. But this is where it starts. This is how it starts. And this younger generation, kids, you hear me? You better know what you believe and why you believe it. Because your day is going to be a lot harder to stand and be a Christian. No doubt you will face persecution. And parents, grandparents, we have a responsibility to instill in our, in our children these truths. And the writer is encouraging them to continue in this kind of brotherly love. And we need to minister to those. Remember those prisoners who were enchained. As if you were chained with them. Again, he's given practical wisdom. He says, since you yourselves are in the body also. Guys, my knee hurts. <laughs> and guess what? My whole body hurts. Because my knee hurts. Many of you can amen. you got body parts that hurt too. And if we all got to talking about it, we'd be here the rest of the day, maybe all week. You know, y'all, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pick on my senior saints because I'm coming quickly, all right? I'm coming quickly. Young people like these guys down here, these young people, they used to say, y'all ever notice how like grandma, grandpa, they all they do is sit around and talk about what's bothering them, their ailments. Young people, your day's coming too. <laughs> I've talked more about this knee than I have all my life about my knees in the past month and a half. But you know what? Guys, we're part of the body. And when one part of the body hurts, spiritually speaking, we all hurt. We've got brothers and sisters hurting right now in parts of the world. And I'm grateful for this church and our support of missions and how we stand with our missionaries financially and prayerfully. Many of you have just recently adopted missionaries. You'll be getting letters from them. Please, earnestly pray over those letters. Encourage those missionaries. Many of you are familiar with Voice of the Martyrs. And we uh, did a study a couple of summers ago. And we went through and uh, stood with them, partnered with them in, in providing uh, supplies for displaced Iraqi refugees, Syrian refugees. Yes, that's what the body of Christ must do. Put yourself in the shoes of those in Syria right now. Put yourself in the shoes of those in communist countries who are in prison, who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. The same gospel that we believe in here, but everything else grabs our attention. Lord, help us to remember the prisoners. And then he goes on and he says, marriage is honorable among all. Now, I'm glad this popped up because I've got two weddings coming up in the next month. Seth, you better start taking some notes. 
Got any Carver Juniors? Uh, you're going to have to pass this on to him. Anyway. <laughs> yes, sir. Ball bat indeed. That, that, that goes a long ways. Um, so I, I'm glad this is in here. So we need, we need some wisdom. We need some reminder here. Listen, folks, this is very important. Marriage is honorable among all. Let me just stop there for a second. We live in a day where marriage is no longer honored. It's trampled underfoot. Now before, you think this is going to be one of those fundamentalist soapbox preaching about gay marriage and, you know, and all these transgender issues. I'm not going necessarily there. I'm going to go somewhere else first. The sleeping church is who I'm talking to. We want to condemn certain sexual sins. And rightfully, we should stand with the truth. And when the culture pushes against us, we stand. We do that. Yes, that's exactly what we do. But church, we didn't stand when people started shacking up. Now let me just say this. God is not concerned as much with yesterday where you were as He is where you are right now. Okay? So I realize when I deliver this message and it comes across hard, some of you automatically feel instant condemnation. This message is not to condemn. This little rabbit trail is not to condemn. But it is to convict. Because we have forsaken the institution of marriage. Marriage is no longer honorable. And God says it's honorable. And if God says it's honorable, it is honorable. The Bible strictly condemns sex outside of the marriage commitment. And there's no way to spin that. And there's no way to justify that. And, and gang, again, I know what the Bible says. There's pleasure in sin for a season. But there's great warning. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he reap. You sow to the flesh, you're going to reap of the flesh. And this passage is very strong. He says, marriage is honorable among all men and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. It's not something to toy with. Especially, especially if we name the name of Christ. If you sit here and you say, I'm a Christian, and you think it's okay to live together, that's wrong. But, but we've, we've made it right in, our, in God's eyes. We've committed ourselves to God together. No, you haven't. You're deceiving yourselves. And you better wake up and hear God is lovingly warning you. Repent. Get your heart right. Get your life right. If this is agape love, it will stand. If it's eros love, you need to lose it. The bed is undefiled. Now let me just say, a lot of people take this and they try to go liberty on this one. Alright? He's not saying, well, you know, 
Whatever goes in the bedroom. Now, kids, you may want to cover your ears for a second. Moms, dads, you know, this is, we'll maybe go PG for a moment. <laughs> yes, please, Jessica, cover Nate's ears. <laughs> That's cute. No, the idea here, again, guys, is, look, we are to, husbands, love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And when it comes to the intimacy of marriage, and God has sanctioned that, he has blessed that, and it is a blessing. Enjoy the blessing, married people. All right? but we should esteem others greater than self. It should be agreed upon. It should be something that is honorable. Okay? Uh, I'll let you sort out the pieces. If you've got any further questions, see Carlton Crane. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Needed a medical, but anyway, I'm just <laughs> All right. But he noticed what he says. The, the, look, the Bible celebrates sexual love with the commitment of marriage. Don't take my word for it. Read the Song of Solomon. There's your advice, all right? Go check out Song of Solomon. Tell me God don't celebrate a little love in the right context. God's not a killjoy, okay? He, he is the... <laughs> Trust me, read Song of Solomon. We'll leave it at that. That's another stuff. Hey, maybe that's our... No, maybe not. <laughs> maybe for our marriage retreat. All right. Fornication and adultery. Now, what about this? He uses two words here, fornication and adultery. They're synonymous in the New Testament, but adultery implies, adultery implies unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. And again, I know many of you have, have suffered at the, at the hands of that, and some have been perpetrators of that. And again, that's not to, to drag up past sins, but it is to compel us to know where I am today and get things right where I'm at today. It implies unfaithfulness by either party to the marriage vow. While the word translated fornication covers a wide range of sexual irregularities. We'll just leave it at that. How about that? There's a lot of things happening in society today that, that young people, older people alike, don't, don't see as wrong, but it's the Bible would refer to it as fornication, and it's sin. Let me, I'm not done yet. Let me get a drink of water. We'll take an intermission. Guys, honorable. Marriage being honorable. You have a responsibility to your spouse. Okay? Husbands, love your wives. Christ loved the church. Wives, See that you show respect to your husband. Your husband is created in a way where respect is part of his makeup. And as a helpmeet, that's your support to him. And husbands, if you're laying down your life for your wife, what woman don't want that? And that's more than just, you know, chivalry. And as far as the marriage bed,
If there's lack of activity, don't be surprised when the spouse takes up pornography, is lured away because of their own sinful heart. Now, I'm not justifying those actions. There's no justification for those actions. But there's a responsibility on the husband and wife's part to love one another, to mutually edify one another, to love agape one another. And that's a love that's giving. And that's a love that also dies to self. It's not demanding. And that's something I think all of our homes can use some work on. Let your conduct be without covetousness. This is another practical thing that the writer is wanting us to know. He says, we're to be content. Notice what the text says. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Now, I think there's a, one of the greatest uh, scriptural points uh, is in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Paul said, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere, in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so the writer is encouraging. Someone asked me in there, Bernard Baruch, how much money does it take for a rich man to be satisfied? Baruch answered, just a million more than he has. Think about it, guys. Money is fleeting. You're never going to have enough. That's his point. Once you get to a certain place, and Scripture says, it's, it's, it's always escaping. You're never satisfied. If that is your pursuit, if that is your drive, I'm going to tell you, the Lord humbles me every year at tax season because I get fired up. <laughs> I get tested. Ask Brother Dean, he'll tell you. I always vent to him about it. <laughs> and I have to step back and, and, and uh, Lord, help me. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Why? God Himself said. This is why we should not be covetous. God Himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now think about that for a second. If God is everything I need, and He is. If He's everything you need, and He is. And He's promised you He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. I don't need that second vehicle as much as I thought I did, do I? God knows my need. He knows your need. He's, His grace is sufficient. Maybe what I need is to learn some contentment. Thank you, I'm still working on that study. Spurgeon, 
said, I will never leave you... Uh, well, yeah, he said in, in response to this passage, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says this, you that are familiar with the Greek text know that there are five negatives here. We cannot manage five negatives in English, but the Greeks find them not too large a handful. Here the negatives have a five-fold force. It is as though it said, I will not, not leave thee. I will never, no, never forsake thee. You think God's trying to send us a message? <laughs> as if you, and by the way, there were three quotes I couldn't choose from all three, so I decided to use all three. Here we go. Here's the next one. Here it is. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. This is the reason why we must not be covetous. There is no room to be covetous, no excuse for being covetous. For God hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. We ought to be content. If we're not content, we're acting insanely, seeing the Lord has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And, in case you missed that point, here's another one. I cannot, under the influence of this grand text, find room for doubt or fear. Let me say that again because some of you need that this morning. The Lord knows I do. I cannot, under the influence of this grand text, find room for doubt or fear. I cannot stand here and be miserable tonight. I'm not going to attempt such a thing. But I cannot be despondent with such a text as this. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I defy the devil himself to mention circumstances under which I ought to be miserable if this text is true. Child of God, nothing ought to make you unhappy when you can realize this precious text. Woo! That'll preach. That's good stuff. So we boldly say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. You know, it's an identity issue. We come back to this oftentimes. Women, hear me, ladies, you tuned out, tune in. Oftentimes your struggle with security. Men, hear me, if you tuned out, tune back in. Oftentimes your struggle is with significance. Whether it's insecurity, insignificance, that longing, that self-worth is found not in each other, not in what this world has to offer. Your identity is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our answer in this. And He's given you a precious promise you can trust in. So we can boldly say, the Lord's my helper. Real contentment comes only when we trust in God to meet our needs, to be our security. Strangely, we are often more likely to put security and find contentment in things far less reliable and secure than God Himself. Our identity and self-worth is found in Jesus Christ. He is greater. He is enough. And so what's our application? Well, I think the writer's been giving us 12 chapters of doctrine. And now he's just giving us some practical things that you and I can follow. Some practical things that we can put into play so that brotherly love can continue. And I think the Apostle Paul said it best in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable 
your reasonable act of worship. Let's pray. Father, thank you for some basic reminders and principles that, that too often times we neglect, we take for granted, and uh, Lord, we sort of don't apply the doctrine that we're, we're learning and studying. And uh, Father, I just ask that you would remind us today in this message that um, those who are believers in Jesus Christ are our brothers and sisters, and we have a responsibility to one another, to love one another, to show hospitality to each other. And Lord, uh, no doubt we've got those who are serving in missions work that we stand with and support and love through giving and through prayer, through going and serving alongside. There are many who also, Lord, today are in prisons because of uh, sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for them and we ask that you would lead us to tangibly help in ways that we might can, to put ourselves in their shoes and to think about, Lord, what can be done for the sake of the gospel. What can be done to bring encouragement and help? And Father, we also recognize that one of the greatest ways that people will know that we're disciples is because of our love one for another. And what greater testimony than that of the marriage, that of the home, as a husband and wife, as a family. Lord, strengthen our families, strengthen our marriages, strengthen our homes, Lord. Help us to shine bright here at Community Baptist Church as married couples. For these two young couples that are going to be getting married, Lord, we pray for them and pray that they recognize that, that marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. And Lord, I call for any professing believer that is involved in any form of sexual fornication or premarital sex, that Lord, they would repent that they would recognize that you love them and that's why this message is being shared today and that they would receive it, not harden to it. And Lord, help us as a body of believers to come alongside people who are hurting. We're not here throwing stones. If that were the case, I'd have been stoned a long time ago. Father, thank you for your grace, but help us not to trample it underfoot. And so, Lord, thank you for the challenge and help us, especially here in America, as believers, to lay aside the covetousness and recognize that Jesus is enough. In his name we pray. Amen.